Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome. My name is Bill Burkrod. I'll be the moderator today. I'm a correspondent with Reuters. This event is being presented in collaboration with Reuters, and both the Forum and Reuters are streaming the event live on their websites, and you can also uh, monitor this on Facebook Live. Uh, I'm going to introduce our, our panelists now. Uh, to my immediate right, we have Cindy Pellegrini, Senior uh, Vice President of Policy, Public Policy and Government Affairs for the March of Dimes. Uh, to her right is Marcia Castro, an Associate Professor of Demography right here at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a member of the Faculty Advisory Committee uh, of Brazil Studies Program who spent quite a bit of time in Brazil. And then joining us remotely, we're lucky to have uh, today uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and Dr. Celeste Phillip, who's the Surgeon General in the state of Florida, which is busy dealing with Zika right now. The program will also include a brief Q&A. You can email questions to us at the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. We're also encouraging you to participate in the live chat that's happening on the forum site right now. Uh, last March, we held a, a forum on Zika uh, earlier in the, this crisis, and we discussed what was going on in South and Central America and the Caribbean. We're going to continue this, uh, this conversation today. We have more than uh, 23,000 cases, uh, according to the CDC, of, of Zika travel and locally acquired in the U.S. and territories, most in Puerto Rico, which has been particularly hard hit, and we'll be talking about Puerto Rico as well. And of course, Florida, which has been the, the epicenter of our local transmission, and we're going to talk about efforts underway in Florida. You know, we, we, we've seemed to have one area a bit under control, and, and we're still getting some reports of uh, new uh, local transmission cases in Florida almost every day. Uh, we'll also talk about uh, what we've learned from, you know, experiences in Brazil and elsewhere, and we'll discuss uh, new data on uh, efforts to develop vaccines and diagnostics, and uh, mosquito control efforts as well. Uh, timing being everything, uh, we are just hours after Congress finally uh, approving some of the emergency funding that the president has been asking for. Clearly, Congress's definition of emergency is a little different from, from what most of ours would be, but. Uh, uh, HHS Secretary Burwell last night said she intends to uh, make make this money available quickly and and hopefully uh, you know get these efforts underway with with some proper funding. So so let's turn to uh, Tony Fauci. Can you sort of tell us you know what the priorities are now that we have uh, some money to spend and give us a little overview on on how how that's going to work, Tony? Yeah, well, it's obviously extremely important that we've gotten this money. As many of us know, when the president asked for the money in the uh, February of 2016, uh, uh, we had put before him the reasons and the needs that we had between the CDC and the NIH predominantly, and we had to start our work on it immediately. So what we did is we borrowed money from accounts that we would normally spend in the summer to get the research started. That got the early basic research and other surveillance work done. And then when we started on the vaccine trials, 
we had to do work in monkey and mouse models and begin the phase one trial, which we did start successfully without delay in August the 2nd. That was money that was borrowed from accounts that were Ebola accounts. And then to prepare the phase two trial sites, which we will begin in January of 2017, we had to prepare those sites and the secretary again ran out of money. So she gave us money that she took away by her transfer authority from cancer, heart disease, diabetes, et cetera, which was really damaging to those programs. We've now run out of that money. So we would not have been able to start the phase two trials in 20 sites in South America, Central America, Puerto Rico, and in the United States if we didn't get the money we just got right now. So this was just in time because we could not have started any further vaccine trials had we not gotten the money. So the highest priority for that right now is to make sure the vaccine trials, when you go from phase one to phase two, which will happen in January or even earlier, that there's no interruption in that transition from a phase one to a phase two. So it really was just in time. So we're no longer, longer robbing Peter to pay Paul. We, we have some dedicated funding. Yes, uh, we do have dedicated funding, but we're not gonna pay back Peter. That's the problem. <laughs> And, and, you, and the president asked for about $800,000 more than you're getting, I understand. Is that right? Right, exactly. Yeah. All right. Uh, Cindy, uh, you've been involved quite a bit in trying to get Congress to do something about this crisis. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that experience is like and what the funding means for your organization? Well, like so many things here in 2016, Bill, uh, Zika funding did not follow the normal rules of politics and policy. Back in February, when the president submitted his request, uh, there was an expectation in the health community that Congress would start moving relatively quickly, that there would be attention paid, that there was a sense of urgency, because that had been our experience with public health crises like Ebola, like pandemic flu, and others. However, that was exactly what did not happen. There wasn't a sense of urgency. In fact, for weeks, no one was talking about this supplemental request in Congress. And so the March of Dimes, brought together a coalition. And I will admit that at the time, we thought we would be working on this for two, maybe three months. That this would be you know, a short-term effort where we'd, we'd bring together resources and partners and put on a big push and, and Congress would respond. And if you had told me back in March that I would still be working on this after Labor Day, I absolutely would not have believed it. However, this is where we were. Um, and I think one of the interesting questions is, well, why was it so hard? Uh, and over time, there were a couple of things that emerged that I'd be happy to share. Sure. So the first was that we, I think we underestimated the fact or didn't fully recognize the fact that back in the spring, Congress was already suffering from what I will call emergency fatigue. There were several other emergency requests already before Congress for, um, a, a, or, or um, special requests for additional funding for NIH through the cures and innovations packages, for money for the opioids crisis, for money for Flint, Michigan. And this was a fourth or fifth or sixth request on top of all these others. And so you had certain members of Congress who were starting to say, wait a minute, you know, this is, this is too many emergency requests, too much off-budget spending. A second thing was the, the, the uncertainty around Zika. You know, it's, now that we know so much more than we did six months ago, it's easy to forget that back then, we hadn't even established the link firmly between Zika and microcephaly. That didn't happen until April or May. And so uh, if there's one thing that Congress doesn't deal with well, it's uncertainty. 
they really would prefer it in a lot of cases to say, well, come back when you're sure, when we really know what we need to do. And then the third thing, frankly, was it was a presidential election year. And there is always going to be a temptation to insert politics into any legislation, um, no matter perhaps how modest a provision might be, or, and, and the key there being that everyone's definition of what a modest provision is um, does not agree. You were joking earlier that you thought you were a lousy lobbyist, but it's That's really right. that Congress just was not ready to do anything. That's right. All right. And uh, uh, as we know, the first locally transmitted cases here, which I think helped spur some action, uh, turned up in Florida in August. Since then, they've undertaken all kinds of actions. They're very good at mosquito control in Florida, and they've, they've been doing spraying, uh, all kinds of other measures to uh, combat the spread. Uh, we're going to look at a short video from Reuters about that effort now from earlier this month. Pesticides are one of the few weapons in the fight against Zika in Florida, but experts say there are many challenges to its use. Reuters correspondent Julie Steenhuisen. To address, uh, you know, something like uh, Zika virus, you have to hit mosquitoes at a number of different vulnerable points, right? You've got an adult population of mosquitoes that is very likely um, infected with the virus, particularly in this Wynwood neighborhood in Miami. And to uh, knock down that population, uh, they have to use adulticides, right? Insecticides that target adult mosquitoes. And there are only two classes of compounds that can kill Aedes aegypti mosquitoes and that are approved for use in the United States. One of these compounds is no longer as effective. Mosquitoes have developed a resistance. So authorities have now switched to an air campaign with Nailed. But that chemical is toxic to some wildlife, including bees, and is banned in Europe and even in Puerto Rico. And even though Nailed can kill the Aedes aegypti, aerial spraying may miss areas where the mosquitoes spend much of their time, under leaves and porches, along building foundations, and even indoors under beds and in closets. Experts would like to see more chemicals approved for use, but only a few companies make pesticides allowed for widespread outbreaks. All right. Well, since that clip, uh, obviously things have been evolving pretty quickly in Florida, and we've we've had uh, one neighborhood uh, uh, north of Miami where they seem to have things under control. Uh, we have another area in Miami Beach where they're still dealing with it. Uh, CDC released a, a paper last Friday uh, describing the impact of the combined aerial and ground spraying. Uh, Celeste, you, you co-authored that paper. Could you describe the, the results of that paper and, and give us sort of an overview of what's happening uh, in, uh, in Florida with Zika? Sure. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to briefly describe our experience in Florida as the first state with local ongoing foreign transmission in the continental U.S. and some of the lessons that we've learned. Um, as you mentioned, we've had two areas in Miami-Dade County, Wynwood, which is just north of downtown Miami, in Miami Beach, where we've identified ongoing transmission, the first of which we believe we successfully interrupted for now more than 25 days. The MMW article that came out last week describes the first four cases of local transmission and the actions that ensued. One of the questions we're frequently asked is what prompted testing for Zika if there was no pertinent travel history? Thinking of and testing for Zika was key in identifying these first local cases. The first four patients we describe in our article all had fever, rash, and arthralgia. Astute clinicians identified the symptom triad as being consistent with Zika and included it in their differential diagnoses, even though the individuals did not travel outside of the U.S. 
our local teams immediately began the shoe leather work of backtracking movements and testing close contacts at home, workplaces, and other settings. Early test results identified a small area in Miami-Dade, which was the Wynwood community, as being the location where transmission likely occurred, which Governor Scott announced on July 29th. This triggered a CDC travel advisory for pregnant women to avoid this area until further notice. Through this investigation, we identified 29 Zika-positive individuals. Since the writing of the article, we now have a total of 33. Since we have additional four additional test results that came in after the publication. Multiple mosquito control and abatement strategies were used, as you heard in the video, including aerial adulticiding with nailid, aerial larviciding with BCI, ground-based spraying with pyrethroids, distribution of mosquito dunks to be used in drains, and door-to-door -door outreach for source reduction. This combination of alternating aerial adulticiding and larviciding treatments seems to have played a major role in interrupting Zika transmission by Aedes aegypti mosquitoes as the mosquito trap counts began to drop precipitously after aerial spraying was begun. We achieved 45 days without any additional cases on September 19th, and the travel advisory for pregnant women to avoid, area, to avoid travel to this area was lifted. While we call the Winwood experience a success overall, managing information on Zika has been challenging because guidelines have changed frequently as our understanding of Zika deepens each week. One example is understanding that has changed significantly regarding modes of transmission since we first started talking about Zika. Um, at the Department of Health, our main goal is to provide timely and accurate information, which is challenging when you have guidelines that are uh, shifting constantly. You have information gaps when science continues to evolve, and that makes it inherently challenging to have a consistent message and make sure you are educating the public and clinicians as needed. This also provides an opportunity for media to raise questions regarding credibility of what you're saying. Uh, we've heard from a group of citizens in South Florida that they simply do not believe that there is a link between Zika and microcephaly and have raised concerns about the safety of NALID, which obviously created a challenging dynamic with the aerial treatments. Uh, we also need to balance the public's desire for information when you're dealing with an emerging infection while protecting people's privacy for those who are end up being cases and their families and their co-workers. Uh, we are gathering information about Zika every day in our state, and we've had a lot of discussions regarding what is important to provide necessary information to the public to ensure that they are making right decisions based on their personal level of risk and with protecting privacy. Our communications tools include daily updates of our case counts for travel-related cases as well as local cases. And we also keep a, a count of pregnant women that are involved that have been diagnosed as having evidence of Zika infection, but we do not list the county of residence. Uh, we certainly know that with the number of travel-related cases of Zika that we continue to see coming into our state, uh, we're now at a total of, of over 700 travel-related cases that we must remain vigilant with personal and community actions, but we are cautiously optimistic that our initial success can be repeated. Thank you so much. Thanks.
It's been one of the mantras uh, since this outbreak started that, uh, you know, we're learning more every day and, and uh, there's still a lot we don't know. The, the information keeps changing. Uh, Marcia, you've been uh, with people really on the front lines in the northeast of Brazil. You've seen some of the worst of it. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on, what we've learned from uh, your experiences there? Yeah, we've learned a lot. I mean, the knowledge on Zika really improved dramatically in the past few months and, and it keeps doing so. Um, I think it's fair to say that Zika is a mosquito-borne disease that is like no other. Um, it causes major birth defects in a large scale. It has um, neurological complications for adults and it can be sexually transmitted. Um, in terms of microcephaly, um, now we know that this is just one of the possible congenital anomalies uh, um, after a Zika infection. So the more, much more broad group of congenital Zika syndrome is much more than just microcephaly. There's at least one study that showed that about 20% of the children born with brain malformations um, had perfectly normal head sizes. We also learn now that the Zika virus continues to create damage in the brain of the child after birth. So the child can be perfectly normal and healthy at birth and then develop problems later. Now, when you put this together, um, it becomes very clear that screening children with congenital Zika syndrome is very complicated. And it's another challenge for the health systems to be able to track those kids. The earliest children born with uh, congenital Zika syndrome in Brazil are just completing one year of age now. And we are learning a lot about the types and severity of complications that they have. Um, so there are a lot of issues on uh, um, seizures, um, they cry a lot, they're very agitated. In the beginning, they were not really breastfeeding well. Um, and now they're developing another problem, which is a severe type of reflux. So those kids are not really eating and um, we don't know exactly how this is going to be managed. There are severe vision impairments, hearing impairments, and we, at this point, we really don't know how it's going to be the longevity of those kids. In terms of adults, the association between Zika and Guillain-Barre syndrome has been established, although the proportion of adults that get Guillain-Barre after a Zika infection is, is very small. Um, but there is another study that was done with mice showing that Zika virus also affects the brain of the adults. And um, theoretically, Zika could impact uh, long-term memory and the risk of depression um, among humans. We're yet to see that. One last thing that I want to mention is if we look at the countries where um, Zika is um, actively transmitted now, 64% of those countries are in the Americas. And if you just take Latin America and the Caribbean, you are at the region that have by far most, the most uh, restricted rules regarding access to abortion. So there is another complication here, which is the lack of legal mechanisms for women to actually decide or to have a choice of what to do in the event of a Zika infection and in the event of um, a fetal malformation that can be known before birth. So this raises an issue of um, not only reproductive rights, but human health, um, women's health. It is truly frightening. Uh, some of the experts I've talked to have been, people have been dealing with microcephaly and these kind of uh, abnormalities, brain abnormalities for, for decades and said they've never seen this kind of severity and these kind of numbers. So there's a lot, a lot to be frightened of, and uh, maybe we need to get this, uh, get this under control. Uh, and again, it's not just the mosquitoes. It's very uh, unusual that we have a mosquito-borne virus that's also transmitted right. sexually, which is another layer of concern that we have to deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to talk a little bit about you know, best practices for responding to this situation, best ways to communicate with the public. 
Uh, we've got a short uh, public service announcement that was uh, produced for the March of Dimes by PAC-TV. So we're going to look at this brief clip and then we'll get back to the discussion. Zika is a serious health problem that concerns all of us. Your best defense is protecting your family from the risk of infection, especially by mosquitoes. Getting Zika during pregnancy can cause microcephaly and other severe brain defects in your baby. If you're pregnant or trying, avoid Zika-affected areas and unprotected sex with anyone who may be infected. See your healthcare provider right away if you have questions. There's plenty you can do to protect your family and your community. Get the facts from the March of Dimes at zapzika.org. Okay, well, uh, you know, public education is going to be an important part of this effort. Uh, there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot that's frightening. Uh, the, the information keeps evolving. But, Cindy, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the, the efforts that the March of Dimes is doing in this. In this uh... Sure. We know at the March of Dimes that pregnant women, women who are trying to get pregnant and their partners, are coming to us for the most trustworthy, reliable, science-based information available. And we take that responsibility very, very seriously. So since the outbreak began, we've created dedicated websites, zapzika.org, marchofdimes.org slash zika, um, and our Spanish website, uh, nacersano.org slash zika, where they are, these are updated sometimes daily with the latest recommendations and science. And we are, we are constantly uh, evaluating the literature, evaluating the recommendations coming out of CDC and out of the professional organizations like for the pediatricians and for the OBGYNs and adding and updating that information. But we also think that one of the most important parts of that endeavor is to be completely honest with our audience. And so that means when we don't know the answer, we have to say we don't know the answer. A lot of what we're doing is taking the questions that come into our website. We have a, an Ask the Expert button. And we have gotten hundreds of questions this year about all aspects of Zika, trying to make sure that we're incorporating that information and those questions back into the website and really meeting people where they are. And unfortunately, for so many of those questions, we still don't have good answers. And, and these are some of the most profound, personal, intimate decisions people are making about when to have children, whether to have children, how many children to have. Um, it's, it's a very difficult situation to be in right now where we so often just don't have good information to give them. So we're doing our best. We're putting everything out there as soon as we get it. Um, it, is, it is sort of, uh, we, we take these complicated guidelines and digest them down to about a fourth or fifth grade reading level to make them as comprehensible as possible to the layperson. Thank you so much. We've talked a little bit about the, uh, the funding uh, earlier and, and we want to talk about that a little more. Obviously, we need to, to deal with mosquito control. We, we need to work on these vaccines. Uh, Tony, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, we, we know what's happening in Florida. Uh, are, are we surprised that we haven't seen Zika yet in some of the other Gulf states? And, and what's, the, what's the vector control efforts going on in places like Texas, Mississippi, other places where we thought we might have local outbreaks? Well, Florida is very special because Florida has a very large number of travel-related cases, over 700 travel-related cases. They also have the kind of uh, environmental situation with regard to the heat, the moisture, the rain, the issues of what happens when you're in the middle of the summer of one of the states that's on the Gulf Coast. So it is not at all surprising. And as you remember, we predicted with a certain degree of, of, of confidence that we were going to see locally transmitted cases. 
And the issue with Florida is that Florida is kind of like the Grand Central Station of traveling from South America, Central America, the Caribbean, Puerto Rico, into Florida. So they have a vulnerability that's based on both the combination of their climate and the location and of what they are. When you talk about other states like Louisiana or Mississippi or Texas, I would not be surprised if we do see local transmission because there certainly are the mosquitoes in the climate there to allow that to happen. What those states don't have is the density of travel-related cases that Florida has. What you do have also with Texas, particularly around the area of Brownsville, is that vulnerable area when we saw dengue and other types of outbreaks in the past, that was the vulnerable area. So if we saw a couple or maybe even more of locally transmitted cases along the Texas-Mexico border, I would not be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if we've seen a case or so in any of those Gulf Coast states, but because of the reason that I just mentioned, Florida is particularly vulnerable of that. And, and this effort to do this concentrated spraying in these sort of one mile square areas, do we think that's the way to go or should we be doing more widespread, you know, uh, pre you know, preventative spraying in other places? Well, you know, it, that really depends on the particular location and the acceptance of the community to spraying. Because as we know, I know we're going to talk about Puerto Rico in a bit, but with Puerto Rico, it's been very difficult to get the community to accept spraying. The success of spraying, as was mentioned by Dr. Philip a little while ago, is that the Wynwood section is a success story of the combination of larvicide and adulticide. They were able to bring the density of mosquitoes down such, which was associated with essentially a cessation of the active transmission. So yes, spraying does work. Whether or not you're gonna be able to do more broad regional spraying, that'll depend on the density of mosquitoes as determined by mosquito trapping. Tony, I wanna come back to you in a little bit about vaccine development, but uh, Marcia, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what's worked in Brazil. Uh, you were one of the, the vocal people who were kind of shouting down the, those who were calling for the Olympics to be canceled and, or moved, and, and you, you know, certainly look to be right in hindsight on that one. Uh, you know, what, what can we learn here from, from what's been successful in Brazil? Yeah, so I, I really want to start just by highlighting the fact that back in August, when the, the whole discussion started in Brazil, Brazil sort of was, in some ways still is, at, at the forefront of the battle against Zika. So they entered a battle not knowing against what they were fighting and therefore <laughs> what weapons they should use. But regardless of this, um, it was local health workers, local physicians that remain pretty much unknown to the large community that called the attention to the problem and then researchers and research institutions joined and it's unbelievable the amount of information that was produced in such a short period of time. So I, I think this has to be stressed. Um, the other thing is, um, if you look uh, back in November, that's when Brazil issued an emergency state regarding Zika and, and microcephaly. And in less than four months after that, 
um, so between November and uh, February, okay. March. It's remarkable all the actions that the government was able to do. So lots of funding were immediately put available for surveillance, for a risk communication, for vector control, for equipping laboratories. So just to give you an example, the, labor the public laboratories not only increased in number, but before they were able to process about 1,000 PCRs per month and shifted to 20,000 per month. Um, they acquired about 18 tons of larviciding that were deployed mainly to the northeast where the epidemic was most severe, but also to the southeast. That's where Rio is, where the Olympics were going to happen. Uh, they trained personnel. They actually now provide training to other countries in Mercosur, and they have online courses that are available to anyone um, to go and check. They started uh, opening new rehabilitation centers to provide care for uh, the children um, that require early stimulation. Um, so there was a lot that has been done, again, in a very short period of time, and in some way not really knowing what you were doing. So it was perfectly imperfect, but it was the best response they could put in place at the time. Just one note about the Olympics. I mean, as you said, anyone that knows anything about vector behavior, anything about the epidemiology of diseases transmitted by Aedes aegypti, and that was closely following the data and the developments, had absolutely no doubts that Zika wasn't going to be a problem during the Olympics. Um, and despite of that, the government really took actions both before the games and during the games, intensified vector control. Um, and I was there. I swear I didn't see any mosquito. I was carrying my repellent <laughs> bottle. I didn't use it. And I guess all of you know that WHO issued a formal report saying there was no cases, no laboratory confirmed cases of Zika during the Olympics. Very good. Thank you so much. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the, about the spraying efforts because we're running into this kind of science versus emotion situation. You, you get a little bit about this. We, we sort of reminiscent of the anti-vaccine, you know, uh, movement. Uh, in this case, we are dealing with poisons, uh, and, and uh, th there are a lot of people in Florida, who, yeah, as Celeste mentioned, that, that are against the spraying. There were some conspiracy theories earlier in Brazil uh, that, it, that it wasn't the Zika that was causing the microcephaly, but it was the insecticides. Uh, so, so what do we know, uh, anyone who wants to take this, what do we know about the science of the spraying? How do we calm the public about the need to do this, take these kind of measures? Tony, Celeste, any, anybody wants to jump in here? I can say something. Uh, I think um, one of the challenges with uh, using NALID for this purpose is that uh, this is one of the first times that spraying has been aerial spraying has been conducted in an area where people live. It's used regularly in Florida, but it tends to be over more agricultural areas. I think uh, going forward for this response, having federal guidelines. Um, where there are clear recommendations for when it's appropriate to be used, as well as a system where we are tracking potential adverse reactions, outcomes, and then being able to share that information back to the public would be helpful in trying to address some of those concerns, allay fears, and also for local decision makers to have a framework to turn to when they have to make these tough decisions. Uh, in our situation, this was the first time that it's been used in this way. And obviously with the concerns heard from Puerto Rico, that was somewhat concerning to us and we weren't quite sure um, how the general, general public would feel. And as we saw in, in our experience, 
there were differing opinions on whether or not it's safe and appropriate. Um, so I think, again, going forward, that would be helpful. Yeah, I, I think, let me just add to that, that it's, it's, you know, having gone through the situation with the vaccine pushbacks uh, years ago and even up to the present time, the best you can do is to try and educate the public, but respect their concerns. I think if you blow them off as if there isn't any real reason for that concern or it's completely outlandish, we've got to understand their concerns and try and get as much evidence-based data as to the safety of this. If they think and equate the use of a very high concentration that can have a lethal effect, I think the issue with the bees was really very unfortunate because there was sort of a mishap there where the beekeepers were not, no, were not notified that there would be spraying. Whereas we know that when they are notified, there's really not a problem with bees. So I think you have to balance the success of what we've seen in Wynwood with trying to explain in a way that is not condescending to the people why we feel as health officials that you can have a risk-benefit ratio of spraying that far goes towards the benefit versus the risk. Tony, let's stick with you. Uh, we talked earlier this summer about vaccines and development. You said NIH had uh, several different kinds, at least three different kinds of vaccines. You've already started testing the DNA-based vaccines. We've also got several companies who have, you know, signed up to, to help out with vaccine development efforts. And we even got one company that's uh, talking about genetically modified mosquitoes and, and how that might uh, be effective. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how that phase one study in healthy volunteers is going and, you know, a little bit about that DNA vaccine and, and what else is sure. on tap. Okay, very good. Well, you correctly mentioned that there are now uh, in sequential time uh, staggering of going into various phases of trial, we have now working with five vaccines. We're either doing one that we developed ourselves, the rest that we're collaborating with either organizations like Rare, companies like Sanofi, like GSK, like Decatur and others. So there's a, a whole bundle of vaccines. The one you mentioned, and let me use that as the prototype, because we started a phase one trial on August the 2nd. We did it in three sites, right here at the NIH Clinical Center, at the University of Maryland in Baltimore, and in Emory in Atlanta. It will be 80 individuals with a pure safety and immunogenicity. And they will be healthy individuals from 18 to 35. We're already up to beyond 60 of them that have received the vaccination. We expect that to be terminated from the standpoint of the injections, we'll follow them for a longer period of time by November or December. If the safety signal looks like we think it will look and the immunogenicity will be as we think it will be because we did the same thing in a monkey model, we got good safety and good immunogenicity and good challenge safety and passive transfer of antibody from the monkey. So from an immunological standpoint, it looks good. What we plan to do is to essentially immediately go from the phase one to a phase 2B. And that study will have as few as 2,400 people and as much as 5,000 people. And I always get asked, how long until you know you're gonna get an efficacy signal or not? And that will really depend on the amount of infections that are going on in the community. And for that reason, 
we have about 20 sites so that we can move around the slots depending on is the outbreak returning in Brazil? Is it in Colombia? What about Puerto Rico or maybe even Florida? So that if you have an outbreak situation, you could know whether you have an efficacy signal in anywhere from a year to a year and a half. If it draws out and the infections go way down because of good infection control by mosquitoes, et cetera, it may take a couple of years before we know it works. The reason why we feel comfortable that ultimately we will have an effective vaccine is because Zika is a flavivirus and we've developed successful vaccines against other flaviviruses. Yellow fever is one of the best vaccines we have. Japanese encephalitis, tick-borne encephalitis, and even West Nile virus, which we would have had a vaccine for, and even a DNA one, but we didn't have a company that wanted to make advanced development. So we feel pretty confident we'll do it. It's just going to take time, depending upon how many infections are in the community. Any thoughts on the, the genetically modified mosquito approach? Yeah, yes, I, I think there is a place for that. I think we have to make sure that we do it with sensitivity to environmental concerns. But there are two things. There's the genetically modified mosquito, the Oxitec one is one of them, where you actually get a sterile male that'll have female uh, 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 involvement that have the offspring that are actually don't survive. Then you have another approach, which is not genetically modified, it's infecting a mosquito with a bacteria called Wolbachia that doesn't allow that mosquito to transmit the viral infection. So there are several ways to manipulate the mosquito. And I think it is definitely worth doing that in a measured, controlled way. And if we show that it's safe, to use it in a more widespread manner. We want to spend some time talking about Puerto Rico before we go to Q&A. So, you know, Puerto Rico has its own set of problems, uh, big economic problems in addition to Zika. The Zika is, a, is widespread there. Uh, you know, I'd like to ask each of our panelists sort of, you know, what we can do from what we've learned. What, what you know, what, can the public do anything about Puerto Rico? Should we be sending mosquito netting to Puerto Rico? Uh, you know, there are special problems there. What, what can we do? We'll start with Cindy. Or? Sure. So the March of Dimes has a, a long-standing presence in Puerto Rico. We've had programs and, and operations there and offices there for many, many years. So we are already well-connected with the Department of Health and the, and the providers there. So we're, we're fortunate to have that kind of head start. Um, we are doing working with CDC to do some provider education of nurses and doctors in Puerto Rico throughout October. We um, are doing some very aggressive outreach and public education. As I mentioned, we do have a Spanish language website that is um, well used um, among the citizenry of Puerto Rico. We have um, other resources that are available in Spanish that we're making available, and again, working with the associations, working with the Department of Health. But it is a very difficult situation because, as you noted, they have these other challenges. The health system is under tremendous stress, even without Zika. And so adding this on top of it, we are hearing, for example, that most people, even if they think they have Zika, don't go to the doctor unless they are a pregnant woman because they figure, well, I'm just going to get better and I'm not going to. So, so the, the count of the infections is probably a dramatic undercount because so many people simply aren't even seeking medical care. 
And we also have some religious issues, uh, you know, objections to, you know, contraception and things like that that you've seen in Brazil. We've got some of that in Puerto Rico as well. And access issues. Uh, Marcia, can you tell us a little bit, maybe some of the lessons from Brazil that can be, you know, utilized in Puerto Rico? Yeah, so I only mentioned two things. One is, is the whole issue of um, um, going back to vector control that we've been talking so much. So um, those actions really are localized. It depends on the characteristics of the breeding habitats. And it has to be a combination of things. So as we saw in the example um, in Florida, it was a combination of different actions that really resulted in something. So if you have a scenario where a lot of your breeding habitats are indoors and therefore the mosquitoes are indoors, just the spatial spraying is not going to solve the problem, but combined with something else will solve the problem. So um, maybe there are better ways to actually address vector control depending on the local characteristics. The other one is really the services that need to be provided. And there are some that are um, largely overseen. Um, for example, mental health support. So pregnant women, um, mothers of children that have congenital Zika syndrome, they are under incredible stress. Depression is very high, and that's one thing that hasn't happened yet. It's mental health support for, the, for those people. And so in anticipation of really severe problems that are about to happen based on what happened in Brazil, I think I would focus on those two things. Very good. Dr. Fauci, how, how can we help Puerto Rico? Puerto Rico is really in a very unfortunate situation, but for all the reasons which my co-panelists mentioned, you know, they're having about 1% of the population infected per week and about 4% per month. That is extraordinary. And if it happens in Puerto Rico with Zika, what happened with them in 2014 with chikungunya, they're going to have a very, very serious problem, which they already have a very serious problem. So. Really, we need to be just encouraging everyone to marshal as much resources as we can to help them through what is going to be a very, very difficult problem as the birth cohort of the many, many pregnant women who are now infected in Puerto Rico come to birth and even loss of pregnancies. It's something that we have to realize, and I think all of us have had the experience, because this is such an unusual situation, where the deleterious effects of the infection because of the effect on a pregnant woman are felt months and months after the actual infection, people take their eye off the ball in the acuteness and the seriousness of this. So Puerto Rico is going through a terrible situation. We have to help them now and not wait until the disaster has already been long gone. We, we just need to do it now. They really do need help. Well, I hope that message is heard loud and clear. And Do Dr. Philip, are there things uh, happening in Florida with registries and testing and uh, that you, that would work in Puerto Rico, even though things are a little different in Puerto Rico than Florida? Uh, I, I believe all states are setting up, are in the process of setting up their Zika pregnancy registry is connecting it to the birth defects registry as well. Uh, I think we're all learning from each other at this point. Um, but I, I also saw that um, CDC has awarded Puerto Rico uh, funding specific for a mosquito control and abatement program. And, and I think from our experience in Florida, we certainly um, have some expertise here that I, I think many of our mosquito control district directors would be willing to provide uh, feedback regarding some of the considerations uh, specific to Zika 
how they might want to look at setting up their program. Uh, and, and I think learning from our Wynwood experience in, in now in Miami Beach, um, th there would be lessons learned there that could be helpful. Very good. I, I would encourage folks here in the audience and people listening to uh, to look for a terrific first-person account that Reuters ran earlier this month by our San Juan uh, bureau chief uh, Nick Brown, who you know sort of went there as a typically cavalier foreign correspondent and came down with a terribly uh, symptomatic case of Zika, which he describes fairly vividly. And and in fact, uh, he and his wife are now going through some. You have to have some difficult decisions and, and, and planning to go through that a lot of other couples are dealing with. Uh, it was a terrific uh, read, uh, I suggest. And I think it's time for uh, Q&A. So uh, I think uh, we have some questions from, uh, from uh, online folks. Yes, we do. Thanks, Bill. We, we do have questions coming in both from within the country and outside. Uh, here's one from a viewer in Ecuador. How sure is the implication of Aedes aegypti in Zika transmission and are there other ways of transmission? Is Aedes aegypti in the area? Is Aedes albopictus too? So albopictus can transmit Zika as well, but I don't think it's as effective as Aedes aegypti. There were a lot of um, discussions about Culex being able to transmit, but there is a study that came from Rio de Janeiro showing that it's not as effective, um, an effective vector for, for Zika. Um, and regarding modes of transmission, um, we have sexual transmission and blood transfusion as well, other than the mosquito. Great, thank you, thank you. And um, here's another question from a viewer in Rio, uh, Georgia Argentini. What's the real situation in terms of new cases among Brazilians and tourists? In Brazil, given that cases continue to be reported and in other countries where weather conditions are similar to Brazil in this period? So Brazil now, it, it's what Dr. Fauci mentioned before, it's quiet because it's low transmission season, but very soon we're gonna have mothers having delivering babies with congenital Zika syndrome because they got pregnant when transmission was going on. Um, we have about um, almost 2,000 cases confirmed of uh, congenital Zika syndrome, but there are still 3,000 under investigation. So um, in Brazil right now it's quiet, but it, September is almost over. So end of October, we're gonna be talking about Zika again in Brazil, there's no question about it. Thank you. Bill, I'll do one more if I can. Right. Um, this is from Colleen Gordon. For people not planning on getting pregnant in the future or older people, what are the main concerns regarding Zika? Are there medical risks for all infected individuals? I think we got into this a little bit, but we have had some uh, questions about it. So Dr. other Fashion? medical risks. Did you hear that question? Yeah, I heard it. Um, is the one that is the most obvious is that obviously for the broad population, uh, excluding pregnant women, which we've discussed, Zika is a relatively mild disease. 80% of the people don't know they're infected and the others have a syndrome that's got fever, joint aches, conjunctivitis, and a rash. However, there is now about, and we need to get better numbers, but the most uh, closest to accurate that we think we have is that about one in every 5,000 people wind up getting Guillain-Barre syndrome, particularly people who are more elderly than others. So if you are in an elderly uh, cassette of age, the chances are much more than if you're a 20-year-old. 
We also have some cases of people who have usually old and usually with other debilitating diseases. There's a recent report that came out yesterday that there were a report of at least an accumulation of 10 deaths that have been associated in Brazil among a much, much larger cohort of people that are getting infected. So although serious disease is a rarity or unusual, it is not zero. So it isn't the kind of thing where you can say, you know, you get infected, no problem at all. But in general, for the broad people, excluding the pregnant women that we've spoken of, it's a mild disease. There have been peripheral neuropathies that have been reported that might be a form thrust of uh, Guillain-Barre, we're not sure, but there is some area of neurological issues that we want to in prospective cohort studies to find out what the real incidence of those other, what we were considering as outlying manifestations. Bill, may I add to that? Yeah, of course. Some in the room may know that the CDC actually does not limit its recommendations on self-protection to just pregnant women. They actually say everyone should wear long sleeves and uh, use DEET containing insecticides and things like that to protect themselves against Zika. And part of that reason is because even if you aren't a woman or aren't getting, planning to get pregnant, um, number one, half of all pregnancies in this country are unplanned. So a lot of these pregnancies are happening among people who had no intention whatsoever of getting pregnant. The second is that anyone can be a vector. So if you go on travel, you may be infected with Zika, you can bring that back to your own community. And, and the mosquitoes in your community can get it from you and then go out and infect other people. Did we have any questions from here in the, in the studio audience? Uh, well, then I've got one more question. Uh, uh, Tony, maybe you can answer this one, and maybe there's not an answer, but there, there was a study several months back that put the range of uh, you know serious birth defects in, in pregnant mothers who've been infected at between one and 13 percent, which is a pretty startling uh, wide range, uh, and and obviously we're hoping it's much closer to the uh, to the lower end of that of that range. Do we know any more? Do we have a handle? Yeah. Well, well, we do, and 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 what the problem is is that you think one to 13 is low. That study that was done that was the one to 13 was women who were infected in the first trimester. And they were women who wound up getting microcephaly. And I think what the study does is does not allow one to fully realize that as we get more and more experience with babies who might be born without microcephaly, the number of defects we're seeing are very, very disturbing. We're seeing things that when you look at, at CTs, they have calcifications that lead to other developmental abnormalities. Things like atherogryposis, you have issues of deafness and blindness. So when we hear one to 13, be careful. That's one to 13 microcephaly in women who are infected in the first trimester. If you add the other defects, plus defects that might occur when you're infected in the second and even the third trimester, I think we're going to see something that is going to be very disturbing. It's going to be, if you're talking about any congenital defect, I think it's going to be much higher than 13%. That's frightening. I was hoping you were going to tell me it was much closer to 1%. All right, so uh, we'd like to wrap up, uh, as we do with these panels, with the, each of our panelists giving a little, uh, a little closing statement on what they would suggest, policy suggestions uh, going forward, uh, you know, what... Uh, 
what should we be doing here? What, Cindy? Well, not surprisingly, I'm going to take a policy, public policy point of view here. I think what we saw in the situation this year with Zika is that we need a different mechanism to address public health emergencies in this country. That expecting Congress to um, be nimble, to dive into the science, be highly scientifically literate, and respond quickly and effectively to these rapidly changing situations is simply not a reasonable expectation. We need to establish a different kind of system, a different kind of mechanism, and I'm not going to suggest today exactly what that should look like, but there are a lot of actors in Washington who are taking a look at this, and the March of Dimes is, is certainly going to be one of them. It would not have taken much for this situation uh, with the Zika emergency funding to completely have fallen apart and for us not to have been able to pass the package at all. It was a very near thing, and, um, and we really can't afford to risk that again in the future. Marcia? So I would say that the Zika crisis really reminds us how vulnerable countries remain to the introduction of diseases. Um, Zika, with its different modes of transmission, uh, devastating health consequences, really demands multiple connected and sustainable uh, responses. And I'm really talking about reproductive rights, healthy cities, effective surveillance, and strong health systems. If instead our response is very much along the lines of fire brigade type of response, then in a not so distant future, we are all gonna be here together discussing the spread of chikungunya, myovirus, or any other pathogen that may emerge in part because of our own failure. That's one of the messages from the CDC is always there's another emergency around the corner. We need to be prepared. Yes. Uh, Dr. Phillip, parting. Uh, oh, we've got Tony on the screen. I was going to save you for last. But Dr. Phillip, can we, uh, what, what are your suggestions for policy moves going forward? Sure. Uh, from Florida's perspective, uh, we suspected that we would be one of the first, if not the first state, to experience local mosquito-borne transmission. And from what we've learned so far and what we've seen from other arboviruses, uh, we're, we're hoping for a cooler, uh, drier winter in South Florida so that we will have some reprieve. But we expect that we will see similar patterns at least for the next couple of years. With that in mind, uh, thinking through how this becomes a longer term response um, within our department, working with uh, other partners, local partners with CDC and other federal partners. I, I think we can take what we've learned to operationalize a bit more for next year and some of the other uh, potential mosquito abatement options that are longer term, we'll certainly consider. Uh, but I think in general, if there are other guidelines um, from federal agencies that can help us with making some of those decisions, uh, because as we've been saying, we're learning as we go, and that often brings a level of discomfort uh, with local policymakers, with the, the public who's living in those impacted areas. Uh, whatever additional information that's being learned that can lead to guidelines that then allow for more discussion, um, sharing of the data and information for people to, to be more educated and feel more comfortable as we make some of these tough decisions. Uh, I think that would be very uh, helpful from a state perspective. 
Dr. Fauci, uh, you've been one of the point men for keeping us all educated about what's going on since this outbreak really got going. Uh, I'll give you the last, the last word. What's your policy takeaway and suggestions going forward? Well, I think there are two. One of them is something that we haven't mentioned yet today, but that we're very serious about, is establishing and strengthening what we call a global health security network, namely the capability throughout the world to have essentially point of contact type diagnostics so that each country has the capability when they notice something strange going on to be able to diagnose it as quickly as possible and to share that information in a global way. I think that we can do much better in being able to prepare ourselves when we see outbreak situations occur. But even more important than that is the point that Cindy mentioned. I feel very strongly that we really need to seriously look into the issue of an emergency global or public health fund. And that we can pick your number. That could be a billion dollars or more than that. So that that's money that's no year money that's there. So that when CDC and other agencies in the NIH need to move quickly, we don't do what we did now. I think we need to use the February request of the president to the end of September, getting the money as an example of what should never happen again in the middle of a health emergency. And the only way we can do that is to have the money readily available so that when you want to backfill it after you've spent it on the emergency, then you could go through the normal tried and true appropriation process, which is a good process when there's not an emergency, but it's not a good process if we have what we just experienced now. So that would be my, my final comment, Bob, thanks. All right, well, we're gonna wanna thank you and, and uh, I wanna let you get out and start spending some of that money. <laughs> all right, I just wanna thank all of our panelists. You've been terrific, very informative discussion and uh, hopefully all of the policies that you've suggested will be implemented in, in a hurry. And, and I'd like to encourage our audience to continue and our viewers to continue this conversation on the forum website at forumhsph.org. Thank you. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the Forum.